I am excited to get to preach this morning. There is this really strange parable that I'm going to use for the basis of my text today. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 14. Now, this parable is told in a few different ways by Jesus, but in Matthew's gospel, it's called the parable of valuable coins. And these coins, you'll hear about them. One one of the guys gets... Uh, about five, another person gets a couple, and another person gets one. And the coins themselves are very valuable. There there are estimates that they're like in the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of value. Some estimates are much lower than that. And then I found a few that are even higher uh, estimates of how much these coins were worth in ancient times. But it's not like a nickel or a dime or even a silver dollar. Like We're talking a lot of money that uh, the characters in this parable receive from their master. So this is Matthew chapter 25, starting with verse 14. And I'll read all the way through uh, to uh, verse 30. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one, he gave five valuable coins. And to another he gave two valuable coins, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent! You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much more. Come and celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and he said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins and look, I've gained two more. His master said, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of more. Come Let's celebrate. Now the one who had received one valuable coin, he came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest gain where you haven't sown and you gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed? Well, in that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much... Even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. 
People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. May God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation. And may God give us wisdom and courage to apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. So typically this parable is read as um, a warning against being lazy. Or it's read as a warning against hoarding things and not sharing them and using them to build up the kingdom of God. But I want us to take a different kind of look at it this morning. I think that it's possible if we engage our imaginations to think of this parable about having a vision of who God is and what God is about. So a lot of times people have this uh, idea that God is stern and angry and, and if that's the way that we typically go through our lives, thinking of God as like this kind of uh, person who's keeping account of all the things we do right and all of the things we do wrong, and then we're going to be punished when we do wrong, that's the kind of God that we experience. So when you have something bad happen in your life, we're prone to think that that thing is happening because we're not good enough and God is punishing us. That's one way to think about this parable. But I think that if we view God in terms of God's grace and God's love, there's a way that we live our lives where we find grace in each moment and we find opportunities to forgive those who have wronged us and we find opportunities to confess our sin and call death out of the cave and live in resurrection light. It's interesting to me that two of these men weren't afraid, and one was. Two of these men were willing to take risks for the kingdom of God, because remember, that's what this parable is about. Jesus starts it off, the kingdom of God is like. So two of them had an understanding that the master, who, who in this, this allegory is going to be God, Two of them believe that God is good and rewards those that take risk for the kingdom and that God is big and bold and willing to go in all kinds of ways and all kinds of places. And you might have noticed that this master was very trusting of all three servants because he gave them a lot of money to manage while he was gone for a long time. If this master wasn't trusting they would not have been given that much money. And if this master wasn't trusting, he wouldn't have been gone for very long. He would have gone for a few days and come back to check on all of his money. But this master seems to be, two out of three people believe that this master is willing to let them take risks for his kingdom. And we also have evidence that he was gone for a long time, which is that this master is trusting. If we view God in terms of who God is by looking at Jesus, grace-filled, loving, reaching out to those who have no place, touching those who no one else will touch, talking to those who no one else will talk to, accepting those that no one else will accept, using the least of all the people to lead a revolution of love, 
if we view God with Jesus as the lens that we see God through, then we see God as trusting and loving and willing to take risks and therefore wanting us to do the same thing. A few months ago, uh, I met with a group of people here at the church and we discussed what is this church about? What are the things that we value highly in this congregation? And what are the things that we do really well? Like what do we, what, what do they see as our mission as a church? And then what do they think, what did they think we could become as a church? And I was meeting with them to to rework our vision and mission statements as a church, kind of refocus us as we're getting ready to come out of a pandemic. I, I kind of in my mind have been using the analogy of this last year because I don't know if you remember know this, but Ash Wednesday is coming up real soon. And it was during Lent last year that we had to go into pandemic mode and stop having public worship gatherings for the safety of all. It's been almost a year. And I've been thinking that maybe for the last year, it's like we're on an airplane that is getting ready to have a crash landing into a lake. And when you're in an airplane that's on a crash landing, I don't think that any engineer in the world would be processing, how could we have made this airplane better? What were the issues that were going on that were causing this thing to crash? I think what people are doing is preparing to swim. And so we have crash-landed. As a society around the world, we have crash-landed. We can see that we are in the water and we're swimming to the shore. And at this point, I think our job as followers of Jesus is to look around and see who is struggling to swim and help them. If you still have strength and you still have energy to swim to shore and you find people who are struggling, help them get to shore. But we also now have to start thinking about when we get to the shore, what are we going to do? Is it going to be Lord of the Flies and all of a sudden like a couple of people rise up as bullies and try to run the whole thing? Or are we going to recreate a culture and a society that is more loving and more generous and more reflective of the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ? And what are we going to do as a congregation called Morning Star? So this is a really good time for us to start envisioning and casting a vision and seeing who is this God that we follow that is the knot that ties everything together for us. So here's what this group of people agreed upon and our board voted as approval. That our mission, now and when we get to the shore, is to point people to the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. That is our one and primary job. If we don't do that, mission failed. Point people to the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. There are lots of churches, lots of places that focus so much on what I call sin management that we forget about grace. Sin management is, hey, don't drink, don't smoke, don't hang around with people who do, don't listen to rock and roll. Like, I, I know that's not a real thing anymore, but like, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
It's about the actual actions that we call sin. And how do we manage those things? And I would say that those things are a symptom of a bigger problem. Scott the painter, Scott Erickson, one of my favorite artists that I follow closely on Instagram, had a picture, a new painting of his that I had not seen before that he posted the other day, and it was of a car driving down the street with a fish on the back of it and a cross on the windshield and a hand sticking out the window flipping someone off. And the question, is this American Christianity? Sin management would say, don't flip people off. Pointing people to the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ would say, the reason that person is flipping someone off is because they have a soul that is in rebellion against the grace of God. We all have that. And our job isn't to manage the symptoms. Our job is allow the whole, to allow the Holy Spirit to cure us of the illness and align our hearts with the Spirit of God. Because God is gracious and loving and trusts us and will trust us to do the right things. And to do those things, we need to align our hearts with God, but we can't do it on our own. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. How? Well, we have to spend time with the Spirit of God. If we neglect to, to pray, if we neglect to recognize the presence of God around us, if we neglect to, to spend time reading scriptures, if we neglect to stop finding the ways that God relates to a hair bow, if we neglect those practices, we forget where God is and who God is. And our hearts start to rebel again. But when we find it, when we see that a hair bow connects to the Spirit of God somehow, when we see a sunrise or a sunset, and I, I love, I love when the sun is setting in the west and that light is shining on the western slope of the Oregon Mountains, the way it paints a picture for us. If you can't experience the presence of God in that, I don't know, I don't know. Or when you hear a baby cooing and gurgling, or when you hear the laughter of friends, when you see an elementary school kid playing drums for the whole church, when you hear multi-generations of people standing on the stage together, singing songs that they believe from like the bottom of their heart. Point that out to people. Because you are seeing and experiencing the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. And our mission is to not only see it and experience it, our mission is to point people to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. When I grew up... Uh, in southeastern New Mexico and Carlsbad, kind of the one thing Carlsbad is famous for is the caverns. Like, you know, like in New Mexico, it's famous for oil fields or whatever. But around the world, it's famous for the Carlsbad caverns, or at least maybe around the United States. <clears throat> and they have a job out there called an interpretive guide. And other national parks have this also. But an interpretive guide is someone who walks through the cave with you and points things out as you approach them, right? We'll say, oh, this giant formation is called the Rock of Ages. 
And we think it's this old, and this is how this thing was formed, and this stalactite is called whatever, whatever, you know, and this is how old we think this is and how long it's been forming, and it's still alive, it's still growing and forming. They're interpreting what we see as we walk through the cave. We, as followers of Jesus, point people to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ anytime we get a chance. And it doesn't have to be cheesy. It doesn't have to be like somebody comes into your office at work and, and is telling you about some good thing that happened. And you, you don't have to be like, hey, you know what? That's the grace of God found. It's not like that. It's more natural. It's doing things like, good job. Let's celebrate. Oh, you struggled. Let's work together. Oh, your family's hurting. Can I pray for you? Your kids won an award. That's amazing. It's being in life with people, recognizing goodness, recognizing brokenness, and recognizing that the grace of God surrounds it all. That is our mission. But we have to have eyes to see the world. Because we could be like the servant who was given one talent, who believes that God is, is fearful and scary and is going to like bring a hammer down if he messed up. Or you can be like the two-thirds of people in this story who believe God is a risk-taker for the kingdom and is willing to step out and do things that aren't quite what we would normally think of as safe and easy. How we see God affects how we live into the mission. And my biggest hope is that Morningstar United Methodist Church will see God through the grace that is found in Jesus. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But this week, I want you to just kind of practice in your head saying the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. The grace of God found in Jesus Christ. You can even pray that. You breathe in. The grace of God. You breathe out. Found in Jesus Christ. When you're going on a walk, you can, every time you make a turn, you can think, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. You could say that to yourself while you're washing your hands. When you see someone flipping someone off out of a window... You can remind yourself, especially if it's you being flipped off, like happened to me this week, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Because I don't know what was going on in that guy's life that flipped me off this week. The way his jaw was moving and the way his head was bouncing, I think he was on drugs. Which, that's not a judgment. That's me recognizing an illness. And, and I hope that the Spirit of God will, will surround him and indwell him and help him to find healing. But I didn't think of that in the moment. I promise you that. I should have thought the grace of God found in Jesus Christ instead of all the other things I was thinking. But together, we can do this mission. It's not just me doing it. It's us doing it. Because if it's just me, I'll fail. I'll forget 
But if it's all of us, we can remember and we can fulfill it because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit that points us to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Amen.